Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I, uh, haven't been sleeping great lately, or, you know, at all. But, to counteract that, I got some tiny cans of Mountain Dew, which have been a fucking godsend. Not that they've necessarily been making me feel any more awake, but they're tiny cans, so I do feel more like a giant. And I've just been pretending that's the reason why I'm moving slowly and doing everything at a reduced pace. Because that's how giants in movies move around. Also, it's Mountain Dew, so, you know, maybe later I'll slowly and clumsily do some extreme sports. That's probably a bad idea. Oh well, let's just talk about a comic book instead. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Stephen Meckleman. A urinating horse might go clip-clop piss. But a summary of the story is a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Stephen. It's hard to argue with your logic. Defenders, number 103, January 1982. The Haunting of Christiansboro. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drawn by Don Perlin. Inked by Joe Sinnott. Lettered by Jim Novak. Colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Clea, Valkyrie, Gargoyle, Hellcat, Nighthawk, Devil Slayer, Wong, and The Beast. And just before we get too much farther into the story, I do want to do a content warning because. An attempted suicide is a fairly major plot point in this story. So just be aware of that going forward. Okay. Previously in the Defenders. Back when he was in college, billionaire do well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, accidentally killed his college girlfriend in a drunk driving accident. Or so he thought. It turned out that Mindy was not so dead after all. After the car accident paralyzed her from the waist down, Kyle's asshole father had paid her to fake her own death and go away. Understandably missed at Kyle for causing her spinal injury, Mindy invested her money in killer robots, which she dressed like hippies, armed with razor-sharp steel-plated picket signs and laser guitars, and sicked on Nighthawk. Hooray! With the aid of Spider-Man, Kyle managed to defeat the Robo-Hippies and had Mindy shipped off to a fancy New England sanitarium in hopes of saning her up. Unfortunately, the sanitarium turned out to be a top-secret government research facility where an overzealous agent named August Masters conducted illegal experiments on the patients to augment their latent psychic abilities. Mindy proved uniquely receptive to these experiments and sent a souped-up Psyblast towards far-off New York, where it zapped an unsuspecting Kyle, leaving the affluent avian aficionado with a paralysis similar to Mindy's own. Except at night, when he was still as strong as two strong men. A month or so after being stricken by this mysterious malady, Kyle went to visit Mindy and stumbled upon the truth about the facility which had been, quote, treating her, unquote. 
After freeing Mindy and shunting her off to a different, hopefully less evil mental hospital, Kyle confronted a decidedly uncontrite August Masters and threatened to expose his wrongdoings to the press. But Masters used his government contacts to hush the whole thing up. Nighthawk was furious, but due to his ongoing diurnal paralysis and the fact that his company was being investigated by the government for gross financial malfeasance, he had little opportunity to pursue the matter any further. In other Defenders news, Isaac Christians, aka the Gargoyle, a relatively recent recruit to our titular non-team, was feeling a little glum. Partly because the occultist octogenarian felt bad about having tried to sell Hellcat's soul to a demon in exchange for an economics incentives program for his beloved hometown, and partly because when Isaac reneged on that deal, he was left trapped in the body of a hideous gargoyle. Isaac wasn't the only defender who was down in the dumps. Hellcat had also been feeling a bit out of sorts, ever since Satan had told her that he was her dad. The Prince of Lies had later revealed that he was probably lying when he said that, but Patsy wasn't sure whether her perfidious possible parent was lying about probably having lied. Gadzooks! What's Doctor Strange up to while his non-teammates are going through such emotional turmoil? How will Patsy try to cheer herself up? And since Isaac's deal with demons fell through, will his hometown of Christiansboro, Virginia face a fate even worse than economic depression? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so hanging out in a subatomic universe with a licensed property line of toys? By sifting through the rubble of her evil dead mother's destroyed home? And yes the malevolent collective nihilism of a race of speedo-clad lunar angels who recently suicided en masse. Huh. A lonely figure sulks through the back alleys of New York, wearing the impenetrable disguise of a trench coat and fedora. It's probably Godzilla, or a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, or three kids trying to sneak into an R-rated movie, but there's no way to know for sure. Some violent jerks accost the possible incognito king of the monsters, and with relatively little preamble, try to stab him. Doesn't go so well for them. The knife bends on impact, and the stranger removes his impenetrable disguise, revealing himself to be... the gargoyle. Hi, Isaac! Once they realize that their victim is no mere trio of underage cinephiles, the stabby jerks flee in terror. Unfortunately for the jerks, on their way out of the alley, they run into Clea and Eric Simon Payne, a.k.a. Devil Slayer, who were out looking for Isaac. Clea teleports the stab-happy scumbags to the nearest police station and pops a mystical command into their brains, compelling them to confess to all their crimes. Then she and Eric roll up on Gargoyle and ask where he's been the past few days. Gargoyle is like, Oh, hello, Clea. Are you mad at me because I stole money from you and Steve's house, which I've been staying at rent-free for the past few months, and then stuck out in the middle of the night without leaving a note? Clay is like, wait, you did what now? I was just worried that you were missing. Your nonsense gargoyle powers block my mystic GPS and make it harder for you to find. Steve's off hanging out with the Micronauts for a while, so I asked Eric here if he could use his telepathy to help track you down. Isaac's like, but why would you go through all that trouble for a grotesque old freak like me? Devil Slayer's like, Yeah, that is a good question. But Clea shushes him and is like, Because you're a friend. Aww. 
When he hears those words, Eric starts crying, and he and Clea share a tearful embrace. After a few minutes, Clea's like, Now, what was that about you stealing money? Gargoyle's like, Oh, hush, you're ruining the moment. Meanwhile, in the suburban town of Montclair, New Jersey, Valkyrie is helping Patsy sift through the rubble of her dead mom's house, which Isaac had destroyed when he kidnapped Patsy and tried to sacrifice her soul to the demon Avarish. Val asks her bereaved buddy why she wanted to do this, and Patsy's like, I don't know, I've been pretty bummed out ever since Satan said he might be my dad, so I'm gonna try leaning into the whole goth thing. Doesn't get much gother than the devil's daughter sifting through the ashes of her dead mother's house. Hey, what's that? What that is turns out to be Patsy's old shadow cloak, the magical teleportation cape she once swiped off a bird-beaked demon assassin. Devil Slayer has one just like it from when he and the bird-beaked demon used to be in a cult together. Patsy gives the cape a little shake, and a terrified kid pops out of it. Hey, it's Cliff! Cliff is a little asshole who found Patsy's cape a few issues ago and tried it on so he could pretend to be his hero, 1930s comic strip star Mandrake the Magician. Apparently, Cliff's been stuck in a pocket dimension ever since. Cliff yells for his mommy and runs home. Patsy's like, gross. Well, guess I won't be wearing this ever again. Some smells you just can't get out. Plus, it would be embarrassing if Eric and I kept showing up places wearing the same outfit. She folds the cape up real small until it sucks itself into its own dimension, disappearing forever. Bye, Shadow Cloak! Once the magical garment has been irrevocably Ouroborosed away, Patsy's like, I'm glad it's gone. From high above her, somewhere off-panel, an ethereal voice is like, Yes, as am I! You don't need that cape or anything else! You are a strong, independent woman! Patsy and Val whip their heads around to find out who this strangely supportive specter could be. Oh, it's Clea, or rather a disembodied astral projection of Clea's head. I guess these unprovoked astral affirmations are a semi-regular occurrence, because neither Hellcat nor Valkyrie seem particularly surprised to see Clea's giant head floating in the sky. Clea's like, Isaac needs our help working through some personal shit! Come quickly! Patsy's like, the old man who wrecked my house kidnapped me, nearly killed my housekeeper, and tried to sacrifice my soul to a demon is sad? What are we waiting for? Valkyrie, let's go. Don't forget, he also apparently stole a bunch of cash from Doctor Strange. Speaking of financial malfeasance, over in Washington, D.C. Federal Court Building, Kyle and his lawyers are meeting with a judge to find out the results of the government's investigation of Richmond Enterprises. The judge is lecturing Kyle about what a shitty, negligent job he did running his company when Clea's head starts floating in front of him and asking him to join the rest of the defenders in Operation Cheer Up Gargoyle. Clea's like, Kyle! 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 Why are you ignoring me? Kyle? Is it because you're listening to that older gentleman in a black robe telling you how bad you are at business? Stop listening to him and come with me! We need your help! I'm sure the rest of the Defenders will be happy to tell you you're bad at things when we're done with our mission. They're always telling me how bad you are at things, so it seems like this would be right in their wheelhouse. Kyle! Kyle yells at Clea's head to please go away, because he is busy. Once Clea's gone, Kyle notices that everyone in the room is staring at him like he's a weirdo, 
because nobody else could see Clea, and it looks to them like he just started yelling for no apparent reason. He tries to make a shitty excuse, but nobody actually cares. The judge is like, Okay, here's the deal. You owe about three quarters of a million dollars in back taxes, and it's 1982, so that is like a lot of money. If you pay it right away, you don't have to go to jail. Oh, and if you could at least try pretending to care what happens to your business, that would be a step in the right direction. Kyle's like, no problem, your honor. Thank you. I've probably got three quarters of a million dollars on me right now. I was thinking about buying a new hat after this meeting. And pretending to care about things is a bit of a specialty of mine. So no worries on that score. Thanks again, Judge. On his way out of the building, Kyle is stopped by a familiar face. It's August Masters, the asshole government agent who is experimenting on Mindy. Masters is like, Hey, buddy. I pulled a couple of strings to get the judge to go easy on you. You're welcome. Leaving a confused Kyle sputtering with rage, Masters walks away, chuckling to himself. Meanwhile, back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Clea asks Gargoyle to tell the rest of the defenders why he's been so sad lately. Gargoyle is like, Well, mostly it's on account of I feel bad about the whole trying to sacrifice Patsy thing. Also, I'm not crazy about being trapped in the body of a hideous, ugly gargoyle. Oh, and also, also, my dad never loved me, and my beloved hometown of Christiansboro, Virginia, has really gone to shit lately. When he's done with his exposition, Valkyrie stands up and is like, Well, there's only one solution to this problem. Gargoyle is like, Are you going to murder me? Because, frankly, that sounds terrific. Val is like, what? N no, I just meant we should go back to Christiansboro with you and try to get some closure. Isaac is like, well, I suppose that sounds okay too, but let's just put a pin in murdering me because I think we really might be onto something with that. Devil Slayer uses his shadow cloak, which he has prudently refrained from Ouroborosing into non-existence, to teleport them all to Christiansboro. Soon after they leave, there's a knock on the door. Wong answers it, and finds that the unexpected caller is a handsome, erudite, blue-furred individual. Is it Nightcrawler? Cookie Monster? My grandmother's old couch? No, it is Hank McCoy, the Beast. Hooray! I mean, I would have been happy to see any of the other three, but it would be a bit of a stretch to describe that sofa as erudite, and... It would really only apply to Cookie Monster if he was in his Alistair Cookie persona from Monsterpiece Theater. I loved it when he did that. Wong tells Hank that everyone else is away on various missions. Beast says that he has something important to talk about and asks if it's alright if he waits inside. Wong shows him in and, in light of recent events, probably hides the valuables. Devil Slayer, Clea, Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Gargoyle teleport into the town square of Christiansboro. The town seems to be abandoned. Isaac is like, Oh no! No one's listening to marching band music at the gazebo! Something must be terribly wrong! I mean, if you consider the fact that it isn't 1890 terribly wrong, which, to be fair, Isaac probably does. Gargoyle rushes off to check on his ancestral home. Concerned that her distraught companion might be headed into a trap, Hellcat follows close behind. 
declaring ominously that he prefers to walk alone. Devil Slayer heads off to walk around the graveyard and brood, because of course he does. Man, that's the guy Patsy should be taking goth lessons from. Speaking of Patsy, the cat-costumed crime fighter is distracted from her pursuit of Isaac when she catches sight of a shadowy figure lurking in the bushes. Reasoning that this stranger might be behind the suspicious lack of gazebo attendance, Patsy ensnares the mysterious lurker with her cat-claw grappling hook thingies. The individual Patsy has caught turns out to be a large, overalls-clad local man with a mild speech impediment. He appears to have an intellectual disability. Okay, a little nervous about how 1982 is going to handle this one, but let's just see how it goes. The man introduces himself as Simple Joe. Of course he does. Damn it, 1982! Joe explains that he's lived in Christiansboro his whole life. It was an economically depressed town, but otherwise a fine place to live. At least it was until a few months ago, when a bunch of dang ghosts showed up and started smashing all the windows and destroying public property. Fucking ghosts. Everyone piled into their cars and fled town. Everyone except for Joe, that is, who had nowhere to go. He's been sneaking around and hiding from the ghosts ever since. Patsy promises Joe that she will help him get rid of the ghosts. Then they hear some ominous laughter coming from nearby, and everything goes dark. While Joe and Patsy were getting acquainted, Isaac had made his way back to stately Christian's Manor, his ancestral mansion. He's surprised when his younger brother Jeremiah greets him warmly from the upstairs balcony. See, the last time the two brothers saw one another wasn't under the best of circumstances. Also, Jeremiah's been dead since like 1910. Apparently, when they were children, the two Christians brothers... Hey, Christians brothers, like the brandy. Neat. Anyway, the two brothers were roughhousing on the balcony when Jeremiah had fallen to his death. Yikes. Jeremiah's like, Oh, Isaac, you don't still blame yourself for my death, do you? Just because you pushed me off the roof and then I plummeted to my demise? Isaac's like, Well, when you put it that way, yes, I guess I kind of do. Jeremiah's like, Okay, I get that. Dad always blamed you, too. That's why he was such a dick to you all the time. But I don't think it's your fault. It's just one of those things that happened. Ah, but what do I know? I'm just a little dead kid. You know, because you accidentally pushed me off the roof. Anyway, bye! And with that, Jeremiah jumps off the roof and disappears. Meanwhile, Clay and Valkyrie are still hanging around the abandoned downtown area. The two heroes are startled by a strange noise. Oh no! But it turns out to be just a cat. Whew. Valkyrie picks up the cat and tries to comfort it, but the cat is evil and attacks them! Oh no! But it's still just a cat. Whew. But then some giant demon arms reach out of the abandoned storefronts, and everything goes dark. While Valkyrie and Clea are riding this jump-stair roller coaster to its unfortunate conclusion, Devil Slayer is brooding darkly in the local cemetery. Eric is thinking about the fact that his life sucks and he's been kind of a jerk lately when he runs into an adorable little blonde girl. Uh-oh. He asks what she's doing in a graveyard at this hour. Or, you know, at all. And the kid starts crying. 
Not knowing what else to do, Eric picks her up and hugs her. Then the girl's eyes start glowing red, and she starts mocking Eric in a demon voice. Everything goes dark. I mean, this one seems a little bit obvious, but still. While his fellow defenders are having these unsettling encounters, Gargoyle is back at his house continuing his melancholy flap down deceased relative Lane. The portrait of his mother, which hangs in the living room, starts talking, and the two of them have a nice little chat. Turns out, Ike and his mom were always very close. After his brother's death, Isaac had wanted to prove himself to his disapproving father, so he had lied about his age and enlisted in the army to serve in World War I at the tender age of 15. After the war ended, he had bummed around Europe for a while, and possibly due to a poor understanding of geography, had ended up in India for a bit, where he developed an interest in the occult. When he finally returned to Virginia, Isaac found that while he was overseas, his mother had died of, uh, the vapors? Or dropsy? Or maybe just it being a hundred years ago. I feel like that was fatal for a lot of people back then. Anyway, Isaac's dad had grown more distant and poured all of his love into civic pride for Christiansboro. It was clear that the elder Mr. Christians saw himself as a guardian of his eponymous town and expected his son to protect it for him after he passed. It was a task that Isaac feels he failed miserably at. Seeing as the town's population seems to consist of <sighs> Simple Joe, an evil cat, and a demonic little girl, this is a difficult opinion to argue against. Valkyrie, Devil Slayer, Clea, and Hellcat awake to find themselves in the desolate woods on the outskirts of town. They're surrounded by Joe, the evil cat, the demonic little girl, and a whole bunch of anonymous ghosts. Their captors do that thing where they all share a single word bubble with wavy edges so you can tell they're speaking in unison with creepy voices. The creepy ghosts and Christians burns inform the defenders that they are representatives of an entity named Null, the Living Darkness. Null appears in the air above our heroes' heads. And, uh, he's really something. Null is a big purple cloud filled with eyeballs and tentacles. He has a giant gaping maw that has a bunch of those stalactites of spittle dripping down from the roof of his mouth. He's pretty gross. Clay is like, what are you? Null is like, I'm so glad you asked. See, a while ago there used to be this race of beautiful white-haired speedo-clad angels called the Seraph, with, with an apostrophe, who lived on the moon. After a while, they got bored of trying to play the flute, so they decided to fly off and explore the universe in a quest to find the meaning of life. They were at it for a long time, but eventually they were like, this is bullshit, we're never gonna figure this out. So they all flew back to the moon, which was now covered with lava for some reason, and purposefully immolated themselves on the fiery lunar surface. But even though they were all dead now, their collective nihilistic rage lived on and convalesced into the vaguely corporeal tentacle and eyeball-rich form of me. No, the living darkness. And I'm gonna use you defenders to help spread the word that there's no point to anything and everything sucks. <laughs> wow. If he had showed up just a couple decades later, Null would have really loved social media. 
Anyway, the defenders don't feel like helping Nobi a pan-global jerkwad, so they try to beat him up. Doesn't go so great. No, and the ghosts he control smack the heroes around something fierce. No also mentions that he's only a few days old, but I'm not sure if this is a metaphor or if Null is actually a baby, but either way, it's a weird thing to brag about. Back at Shea Christians, Isaac has given in to his darker impulses. The elderly occultist has tied a noose around his neck and decides to hang himself. His scaly eyes fill with tears as he slowly steps off the edge of the desk in his study. Okay, first of all, damn. That is a lot darker than I anticipated this comic getting. Second of all, well, I mean, he does know he can fly, right? Yeah, apparently he didn't. Isaac is dismayed that his suicide attempt is an abject failure. Not only do his wings start flapping and keeping him aloft, but even if they hadn't, the neck of his hell-spawned body is as nigh-undestructible as the rest of him is. Isaac starts yelling at himself about what a bad job he did suiciding. The ghost of his dad storms in and is like, Yelling at Isaac and calling him a loser? That's my favorite hobby! I want in! Isaac, you suck! Get out of my house, you failure! Despite their sympathetic words earlier in the issue, the ghosts of Isaac's mom and brother show up and get in on the act as well, adding their voices to the chorus of Ike denigration. Tearfully, the gargoyle flees his ancestral house. He doesn't get that far before he runs into the defenders and sees Null and his cat's paws beating the shit out of them. Isaac's despondence turns to resolve, and he starts using his life-sucking powers on Null. That doesn't work so great, because life-sucking is kind of Null's whole thing, and by the comic book property of homonym transference, Gargoyle's efforts only make Null stronger. Then Gargoyle has a brainstorm. He puts his powers into reverse and starts blasting life force into the big purple blob of weaponized existential angst. That seems to do the trick. After a few seconds of being bombarded with life-giving good vibes, Null the Living Darkness howls in rage and implodes. Hooray! The ghosts who had been attacking the defenders start fading out of existence. The ghosts of Isaac's family pop up for a second, too. Isaac's dad is like, Hey, sorry about yelling at you for being so bad at suicide. It was uh, all part of a trick that we did to get you to be a better superhero or something. Anyway, I'm proud of you and we all love you. Okay, bye! When he has finished his little speech, Isaac's dad and the rest of the Christian's family join their spectral brethren in fading out of existence. Bye, Isaac's dead mom! Bye, Isaac's brother he accidentally killed seven years ago! Bye, Isaac's manipulative withholding dead dad! Clay is like, um, Isaac, are you doing okay? You know, because of the whole ghosts of your family thing. And also, did one of them say something about you trying to suicide? Isaac gives a huge grin and is like, I've never felt better. Let's go back to the gazebo and I'll see if I can scare us up a sousaphone. It's party time. The end. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. We um, have a spooky comic to read on what is Friday the 13th as of this recording. Yes, and it's a spookily hot day outside. 
I am uncomfortable. <laughs> As am I. It is well over 100 degrees. It might not be anymore, but it sure feels it in this room. I think the extreme heat was mitigated slightly by all of the forest fires in the area, which uh, blocked out the sun a little bit and gave us a chance to cool off. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, made for a really apocalyptic sunset outside. I can see it right now. It's, it's this bright orange ball in the sky, a little mm-hmm. bit foreboding. Indeed. Do you have any particular Friday the 13th rituals that you observe? I do not. No, you don't go out and, you know, murder some promiscuous teens or watch a movie or anything <laughs> like that. I make sure not to. Well, let's see what it what gets you killed. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't fuck. Oh, no, you're just Oh, that's minor threat. <laughs> yeah, you're just reciting <laughs> minor threat lyrics. Okay. Well, that'll pretty much keep you safe from Jason and the Ilk. Andy and McKay. Yeah. Win-win. <laughs> nice. Well, do you want to dive in and start talking about this comic? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, despite this being a gargoyle-centric issue and gargoyle being one of my least favorite people, I surprisingly liked it. I did too, and I gotta say, Gargoyle is growing on me. I really did not like how he is introduced, but I like having a character that is so different in life experience from the normal superheroes that I kind of dig him. Mm-hmm. And I guess skipping ahead a little bit, I, I think one thing that sort of encapsulated that for me was when he becomes so despondent about two-thirds of the way through the issue, he opts to take his own life, and his little wings <laughs> won't let him. Yeah, it is such a bizarre and I think unintentionally darkly funny moment Mm -hmm. where, I mean, obviously your heart goes out to him because he's a character who I think over the course of the book, you do end up developing a fair amount of empathy for. And certainly you never want to see anyone take their own life. But also, bad job, dude. Such a bad job. Yeah, and it's sort of the book end on a this is why I am the way I am because I have done such a bad job in my dad's eyes at so many things, even taking my own life, which I cannot do because I'm so bad at everything. It really is a just like, you really don't think things through, buddy, do you? Like, mm-hmm. trying to hang yourself when you can fly with relative ease is like trying to kill yourself by holding your breath. Mm-hmm. It's just probably not going to work. Yep. Especially when you have, like, a super tough, supernatural body that you know is nigh indestructible. Exactly. That being said, like I said, I did end up liking the character more, this issue, and that's been happening over the course of the last few issues. Still has a big hill to overcome in the whole introduced to the character who we're supposed to like when he tries to sacrifice a character who we really care about to demonic forces in exchange for an economics incentive program for his small town, which Mm -hmm. he doesn't like the fact that it's changed so much since the early 1900s. Like, you gotta believe small southern town in the early 1900s is really only idyllic from a very specific perspective. Yeah, that's not a great look. And also, like, I get that they're building empathy and it does largely work, but his, I guess, excuse for that sacrifice for the town is, 
you know, I wanted to impress my dad. Yeah, because his dad was pissed at him because he accidentally killed his brother when they were both young. And that is horrifying. And I really do feel terrible for him for that. But also, when the ghost of his younger brother is like, oh, you don't blame yourself for my death, do you? Just because you pushed me off a roof. To my death? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, I know it wasn't strictly speaking on purpose in that you were kids and god i know we've discussed it on the show but we were both free-range kids by and large and there are a number of things that we both could have done at various points that would have resulted in our or another's death and we really got off lucky i had that same thought i was like if something had gone just a little bit wrong when i when i beamed my neighbor and at the time good friend on the head with a actual cast iron frying pan that was so heavy it was hard to lift like that could have gone terribly wrong i mean mean, it it didn't go great but (laughs) he wasn't hospitalized or anything i don't know Corey. he might have had it coming (laughs) that's probably not what you're gonna say no that is what i was gonna say (laughs) i don't think anybody would have held it against you for too long He was going through a jerky phase, I guess. Hmm. That was the only phase in which I knew the gentleman in question, so... (laughs) I thought this whole episode was about building empathy, (laughs) Hope. Well, I wouldn't say that's necessarily what this whole issue was about, because, goddamn, a lot of stuff is packed into this issue. Mm Mm-hmm. Overall, I ended up really liking this issue, but I do wish it maybe had a slightly narrower focus. There are a lot of different, like, cleaning up bits that happen in this issue, and, I don't know, man, a lot of, like, almost Haney-esque, unnecessarily complicated backstory for some of the events. Like, when we get a three-panel thing of the origin of this Null the Living Darkness guy, whose deal is that There used to be a race of angels who lived on the moon named the Sraf, so you can tell they're from space, even Mm -hmm. if it is only the moon space. And then they decided they wanted to know the meaning of life, so they all went off searching for it, and then they couldn't figure it out. So then they came back to the moon and all crashed into it, and the moon was on fire then for some reason. And then they all died, and then... Their collective spirits were still so pissed off that they couldn't figure out the meaning of life that they gave birth to this weird, dark, nebulous cloud filled with eyes and tentacles. And mm-hmm. now he's pissed. Mm-hmm. And, and also he says that all happened a few days ago. Yeah, I somehow thought that was like a different comic book you were describing. I guess that did happen <laughs> in this same issue. It happened in this issue and it happened in about three panels in this issue. <laughs> Yeah, that one, I was trying to piece that together. Because it's one of those things where you read it once and you're like, oh, that's probably like, I don't know, one of those complicated detective stories that <laughs> is like, okay, I don't really get it, but it probably makes sense and I just missed the point. I don't think it was necessarily that it didn't make sense. It was just a lot. Like, it's not like there couldn't have just been some, I don't know, bad Earth event that made ghosts. I don't know, it just seemed like there were different directions that could have come from. And then a lot of the ghost stuff didn't quite hold together, 
Like, I kind of wish the story had focused more on Gargoyle and just been kind of a one-off him having an adventure issue, much like the last issue was Nighthawk off having an adventure. I feel like it might have benefited from slightly narrower focus, especially because some of the spooky and dark and atmospheric stuff was done so well. The opening three-page sequence is fucking gorgeous, where it's Gargoyle walking around the streets of New York in the rain in his impenetrable disguise of a trench coat and fedora. Like, Mm. the way that the rain is drawn in that, like, just the claustrophobic tone, it was so good. Yeah. And I think if we didn't necessarily have the little offshoot dealing with Nighthawk and the little offshoot dealing with Hellcat getting rid of her cape, I think maybe it, it would have helped focus the issue a little bit more. You know, I would have kept those two and gotten rid of the cloud of existentially challenged angel anger. Yeah, that cloud did kind of undercut some of the, I don't know, dark, ominous menace that had been built up up until it showed up because it just looked kind of goofy, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a beholder in D&D. Like, I know you're real powerful, but gosh, you look goofy with all those eyes. I wonder if it was some kind of like a meta commentary about angels and stuff. Because, you know, the race of aliens is called like the Seraph, but with some apostrophes. So like, that's like Seraphim. Mm -hmm. And from like the Madeline Lengo books, you know that angels are just big masses of wings and eyeballs. So maybe you throw in a tentacle or two and uh, that's what that guy's supposed to represent. Mm -hmm. I gotta say... I guess I understand some of their frustration. That panel on page 16 that shows, like, there's an angel dude trying to play a flute with his nose, and he looks really mad, and there's a lady, I'm not sure what she's doing, rubbing her buttocks on her rock or something. She looks pissed at the way that dude is smelling the flute. I'll tell you that much. It's like, that's my nose flute. Give it back. Yeah, I don't know, but um, it bodes ill. It looks like he is having a lot of trouble with that flute, I gotta say. Like, both from the fact that he is holding it up to his nose and the weird, like, death grip that he seems to have on it. Mm -hmm. It really looks like he is doing a bad job smelling that flute, or he just really does not like the way it smells. And there's, like, an angel in the background doing the folded arm, shaking his head. (laughs) Get a load of that jerk, you know, kind of. Uh-huh. And they're all wearing Speedos, too. I get the impression the moon is kind of chilly, so maybe that's partly why they're all in such a bad mood. Mm. Uh, The lady who is rubbing her butt against a rock, she doesn't look too stoked about those flute smells either, so... Oh, no. No, not at all. Well, you said you would leave in the Patsy and Kyle interludes. Let's talk about those. What did you think of the Kyle interlude? Oh my gosh, Kyle. (laughs) You are so bad at business. (laughs) Just when you think he's getting better... Mm-hmm. He's not. I'm mad at Kyle. Here's the thing. I think he still is getting better. He's still just terrible at it. At least he's going to pay the three quarters of a million in back taxes that he didn't know he had. Yeah, I was glad that he didn't get all like indignant and argue about that. So kudos. But also, like, if Clea telepathically pages you and you're in a super tense, like the judge is making a decision about whether you go to jail or not, can't you just like, it's like you get a, a text or a phone call in the middle of something, and you're just like, okay, I'll get back to this person because this present matter is kind of important. 
in Kyle's defense, I don't know if there is a astral hold button, you know? I think part of that is probably on Clea. Those things are two ways. When she pops up, she can see what situation Kyle's in. She could have been like, oh, sorry, I'll get back to you in a minute, you know? Mm -hmm. Or just ignore her and then Clea take a hint that he's ignoring you instead of just be like, oh my god, what the fuck is going on? Oh, sorry, did I cause a scene? (laughs) I got the impression that he had ignored it for a little while and then was like, Clea, Clea, I'm doing something, please. Because she did repeat herself slightly and I think there was maybe the implication that that had been going on for a little while. Mm, That's charitable. Kyle, Kyle Richmond, are you receiving my psychic summons? And he doesn't answer then. And then she's like, Kyle, the defenders have need of you in New York. Will Nighthawk come? Kyle! And he has a few thought bubbles before he's like, Jesus, Clay, knock it off, okay? I can't do it. And then looks around and everybody stares at him. And he does the worst job trying to cover for it. Mm. Those aren't thought bubbles, though. He says it out loud. Clay, for crying out loud. Oh, that part he says out loud. But before that, he the oh, no, not now. He thinks that first. And mm-hmm. I, I think had been trying to ignore her for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I love the follow-up to that, where he's like, oh, no, just my, uh, my nose itched, and sometimes I can yell it away. I gotta say, that is such a bad excuse that I did find it pretty charming, especially when it was coupled with that look of, like, attempting to grin and shrug it off embarrassment that I thought was really, really nicely drawn. Yeah, that was well executed, and I did enjoy seeing him squirm a little bit there. I'll, I'll give it that. I also, I don't know about his lawyer, man. I mean, Matt Murdock seems to be doing a good job, and overall, Rosenblum seems to be doing a good job, too. But Rosenblum, when you have a billionaire taking you out for dinner, you don't want to fill up on starch. You don't suggest pasta. Hmm. I love pasta, too. But if I'm eating on Nighthawk's dime, uh-oh, man. We're getting lobster. I was just going to say, yeah, crustaceans. Well, crustaceans may not be part of Rosenblum's diet, but there probably is something a little bit more high-end. You're going to want to lean into a protein in that situation. Mm. I did also like that Kyle is off the hook now because his only crime was gross financial negligence and mm. tax evasion. And also accidentally getting in bed with the monster that turned his college girlfriend into a a psychic weapon. Well, he's not being prosecuted for that, though. No, no. And it's, you know, ostensibly not his fault that that guy bailed him out. Okay, so do you think that Masters actually bailed him out of trouble? Or is Masters just saying that? It seems likely to me because I think at, at this point in the early 80s, $767,000 that Kyle owes in back taxes is a lot. It is a lot, but he still has to pay that. That's not forgiven. It's just that he's not going to face jail time in addition for that. Yeah, no, that's my point is that it's the sum is large enough that that degree of negligence seems like it would get more than a, oh, you forgot to pay us back because you're dumb. Mm, No problem. Is a rich white dude. Yeah, I think even in 1982, those guys weren't doing a lot of jail time. So you think that um, that Masters is uh, just messing with him? Yeah, I think he is being manipulative, and I think that is within his purview as a CIB agent. 
I don't know. I, I guess I can see it going either way, but I think it's odd that Kyle immediately believes him, especially where they had such an antagonistic relationship so recently, and Masters would really love to tweak Kyle's beak, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Now, regardless of whether or not he did exert that amount of influence, the outcome was what he wanted, which is essentially to have, you know, Kyle OM1, or Kyle to think he owes him one. Yeah. So what did you think of the Patsy interlude, where she gets rid of her shadow cloak and, I guess, rescues that kid from the void? Oh, that kid. I'm still <laughs> mad at him from the first issue he appeared in. A fucking chip. Was it chip? It was a name like that. Yeah. He did redeem himself a little bit by coming out and saying, Oh, mama! Help! And running away. That was pretty cute. It was pretty cute. I also think it was maybe not out of character, but pretty irresponsible of Patsy to just be like, huh, looked like there was a kid stuck in there. Oh, well, just going to fold up this dimension, throw away the key to it. Um, Maybe you could do a quick sweep first. Like if I'm leaving my hotel room, I look like under the bed six times to make sure I didn't drop anything. Might be worth at least taking everything a quick sweep to make sure that you didn't leave any other kids in that dimension before you throw away the key to it. Yeah, good call. She wasn't there to witness them playing in the, the wreckage, so, you know, as far as she knows, there could be a whole bunch of them in there. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the fact that there was a kid in there in the first place doesn't seem to disturb her all that much. She seems pretty stoked about just folding that cape up and tossing it away, which also I wish she wasn't doing. I understand it kind of from a character standpoint, but I liked her having the cloak and I thought it was a cool thing for her and I'm bummed she's getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not fair, but I kind of blame Devil Slayer for this. Because hmm. I think if he hadn't showed up, then you don't have the redundancy of the teleportation cape. And that really is all he can do, except for they are playing up his mild telepathy in this issue a bit. You know, that said, I yeah, I get what you're saying, but also considering what her character's been through recently and where they kind of leave this with, you know, oh, gosh, I could totally be the devil's daughter. And Val's like, no, you're totally not. And she's like, yeah, but what if I am? Like, I'm probably going to wash my hands of as much direct connection to mystical shit as possible if I've got that in my head. I guess that does make sense, especially when you see even the fact that she is very agile. She is like, Oh, is this only because the devil might be my dad? Is that why I can do a flip? Oh, no. Yeah, it's like a weirdly opposite version of the typical self-doubt that plagues some people. Where, you know, you're just like, oh, gosh, I must be so bad at so many things because I did this one small thing wrong. Mm -hmm. No, everything that she does right, she's like, oh, it's the devil. Mm-hmm. Oh, stupid Satan being my dad. I bet that's why I'm so pretty. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to Devil Slayer real quick. Something that he says in passing raised a pretty big question for me about him. Do you think Devil Slayer is a serial killer? Um, what did he say that made you wonder about that? Well, we have mocked him, and I think rightly, a lot in the past for his choice of name. He calls himself Devil Slayer. There is presumably only one, or worst case scenario, as we learned in recent issues, for the devils. 
and they're all still alive, so he's very bad at his job. But as Clea sends those muggers off to jail, he calls them those devils. Mm. Is he just out there killing everyone who he considers a devil? Is that just a low-grade insult for him? And if so, is that why he chose his name? Is it like a fool killer situation? That's what I was just thinking. We got ourselves a, another fool killer on our hands. It makes me wonder a little bit whether Devil Slayer was set up as an analogy to fool killer. Hmm. I doubt it, but I don't know, man. I don't trust this guy. Well, he's certainly not as obviously goofy. As fool killer? Yeah. He does not have a floppy hat, if nothing else. No. No seashell belt buckle. Nope. Doesn't encourage anyone to live a poem. Nope. But being less goofy doesn't necessarily make you less of a serial killer. So I'm keeping my eye on Devil Slayer. Yeah, that's fair. We're also reintroduced to a character who we've seen only appear briefly in these pages, but is going to play a much larger role soon. Uh, Beast shows up at the Sanctum and apparently has something big on his mind. How do you feel about Beast? Um, pretty limited exposure. I just mostly think of him as Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, in fact, I just wrote, I called him Kelsey Grammer in my notes, not even <laughs> Beast. Fair enough. That's going to make things interesting, reading that character going forward. Good. Yeah, I liked that, you know, despite our earlier complaints of this being kind of a too much of a densely packed issue, the Easter egg or the foreshadowing for whatever's going to unfold from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says we're told explicitly at the end of the title that the next issue is going to feature both Beast and Wonder Man. So kind of looking forward to that. I think that could be interesting. I hope Beast isn't in too much trouble. I, I like him. I don't want to see him with uh, scrambled eggs all over his face. So, best of luck. <laughs> I didn't realize that he was a Avenger. Oh, yeah. There was an odd turn that the Beast had in the 70s. Around the time that he got his first black, then blue fur. Because initially, he did not have any fur when he was an X-Man. Then Steve Englehart took over the character in Amazing Adventures, and he had a slight solo run, and that's actually what brought Patsy into the Marvel Universe proper, was she was a side character in those issues. And then he ended up joining the Avengers after that. And during the Amazing Adventures run, he was kind of more of a dark and brooding character. And then Steve Englehart, he basically went out to California and smoked a bunch of weed and uh, started lightening up a little bit. And he decided that's kind of what the Beast did, too. And so then he brought the character back and gave him a more lighthearted, carefree attitude. And uh, that was the character that he had be an Avenger. Wow. Interesting. So still super smart guy, but more of a uh, wacky prankster type dude. More fun loving, less dark and, I don't know, melancholy. Mm. Interested in raiding Wong's pantry. Indeed. So we talked a little bit about Kyle's reaction to Clea's astral projection showing up, but Kyle's not the only character that she appears to, because she also pops up at the end of the little Hellcat Valkyrie interlude. And that whole interaction really cracked me up. Just that Patsy was talking about how she didn't need her 
shadow cloak anymore. And she hears this disembodied voice, because she doesn't see Clea at first, just saying, No, you don't need it at all, a strong, beautiful woman like you. You don't need any extra accessories. You've got it all. And she's like, what? Oh, Clea. Her reaction made me wonder if Clea does this a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like it's coming from a good place, but it is also just like, um, could you maybe use some kind of a psychic knock or something? Because Patsy's reaction does start with her going, oh, oh, it's you. Yeah, and I mean, that kind of goes back to the Kyle thing we were talking about earlier. Like, because of this scene also, I did get the impression that this is just kind of Clea's, like, M.O. Just all the time popping up. Hello! <laughs> I like how affirming she is, that she just basically pops up psychically and is like, Yes, queen! Slay! <laughs> yeah. And I, I gotta say, I love the ending panels of that, where Clea basically shows up, and she's like, hey guys, we need you, let's go. And Valkyrie does her typical, like, you know, grab the sword and magically transform my costume, and it's super majestic, and Patsy's like, well, I'll just take off my trench coat and say, ta-da! <laughs> it is a fun sequence, and there's a lot of fun in this issue, in part because there's a lot of everything. I gotta say one character who didn't sit particularly great with me, who maybe hasn't aged that well, is uh, Simple Joe. Mm. That one was a little bit rough. It really did give me flashbacks to uh, the Ben Stiller character in Tropic Thunder, and was just like, ooh, I'm getting like so many levels of cringe off of this character now. Mm-hmm. Also, I wasn't really sure, like, his character is introduced as, okay, he's the guy who didn't leave town because he's simple, and he also doesn't have, I guess, the same support network that everyone who fled Christiansboro when ghosts showed up and started smashing windows, which also seems like a weird thing for ghosts to do, especially if, like, Null the Living Darkness wants to kill people, which seems like what he wants to do. Why do you scare them all off first by making your ghosts basically go around breaking glass everywhere? Yeah, I was wondering that too. Like, did the ghosts all just hang out and they're like, okay, we gotta learn about people and, I don't know, a Super Bowl or World Series <laughs> that just happened. And they're like, oh, okay. That's, that's what they do. Yeah, maybe the ghost hockey team just won a big game. Yeah, it's just turning cars over and so everyone flees from the ghosts and their little, like, uh, post-hockey game celebratory riot. Mm -hmm. Except for Simple Joe and a cat and a little girl. So they go through a lot of lengths to explain why Simple Joe didn't leave town. But then the fact that there's just a seven-year-old girl wandering around a graveyard, they don't explain at all. Well, they never unless I missed it, explain her as just being a seven-year-old girl who's lost. It kind of seemed like she was an instrument of these um, apparitions. That seemed to be the case with the little girl and the cat that attacked Valkyrie and Clea. But then you see the two of them standing next to Simple Joe. So I think it was maybe trying to imply that he had also been possessed and was an instrument of destruction at the end, or maybe... The cat and the girl were also innocent victims who got taken over by the creature. At that point, it was really unclear what was going on and what connection 
all three of them had, and it would have been nice if it was a little more consistent. I don't know. It, it was confusing to me. Well, I'm a broken record here, but you just gotta let it wash over you, man. Like, Simple Joe is introduced, and yeah, is uncomfortable and stuff. He gets possessed at the end, and then the, the kid and the cat are just, you know, your, your creepy horror tropes that are there. The kid was always just a manifestation of no? Is that what you're saying? Or like one of the ghosts, just in creepier form. I guess. Little kid with demonic face that you pick up is about as creepy as it gets, right? No, I get you. It, it is super creepy, but I don't know. It didn't make sense to me that that would be the case for some of the beings left in town and not for others. Like, none of the other ghosts showed an ability to have a fully physical manifestation. Well, you got Devil Slayer. Mm-hmm. He's a pretty tough dude. Mm-hmm. He's in a graveyard. He's not scared at all. Like, what can we do that's going to freak him out in the context of, you know, a horror comic? Cute little kid, needs help. Suddenly, red eyes. Ah, scary. And a cat, you know, we've all had that experience. Oh, look how cute it is. Ouch, Jesus, fuck, why? Yeah, well, that is also kind of the prototypical jump scare in a horror movie. You know, oh, it's just a cat. But then you kind of double back to it and are like, oh, yeah, it was just a cat, but an evil cat. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm not saying that I don't understand why the writer would want to do that. I'm just a little bit annoyed that they didn't justify it better with in-story reasons. So, all of those little digressions aside, I think the main thrust of this issue was filling in a little bit more of the backstory of Isaac. How did this story work for you in that regard? Well, I think as I said earlier, you know, we are supposed to feel empathy for the bad choices he made that hurt people and put a lot of people at risk because he had a a rough time with his dad. Mm -hmm. And it was effective in communicating that was why he did what he did. Mm -hmm. It was trickier for me to summon the uh, empathy that I I think I was expected to. Gotcha. I got to say, one of the things that most surprised me was finding out that Isaac is 78 years old. I thought he was much older than that. Mm Mm-hmm. It's especially odd because they have to do a fair amount of backtracking to get him to be that age because they had to be like, oh, yeah, no, he ran away to join the army early so he could enlist in World War I when he was only 15. That puts him at a very specific age. It means he could only be there for the last year of World War I because it mm. ended in 1918. So he must have enrolled at the last minute and went over and served and then come back home pretty quickly. He didn't come back right away because his mom was giving him a hard time about uh, hanging out in cafes and back alleys in Europe. Yeah, hanging out in bistros in Europe. Yeah, that's it. It's like, oh, he ate some jazz sandwiches over there. Pastries and weed, man. He was up to in those back alleys and bistros. (laughs) Came back and was just chasing that panini dragon. (laughs) Yeah, it is kind of odd. Like, it didn't seem like he spent a lot of time in India. It kind of puts that in as an afterthought where it was just like, oh, and then he got involved in the occult. How do you do that? Um, He he went to India for a second. It's like, oh, okay. You kind of got the impression he bought like a deck of tarot cards in like the New Delhi airport or something, you know? Yeah, I, I also feel, though, in a lot of these books, India has been shorthand for um, the unfortunate 
aspects of the other. Well, they got turbans, so they probably got sacrificial magic too. Yeah, I think you're probably right. He should have continued to look for relief in those bistros. <laughs> I know. It's like a much healthier method of escapism. Mm. I gotta say, I like the look of human Isaac. I think this is the first we've actually seen him. We saw, I think, Steve's approximation of what he thought human Isaac looked like in the form of a disguise earlier. But, uh, as he's kind of like a skinnier Commissioner Gordon, but, uh, in a nice bright yellow cardigan. You don't see a lot of dabbling in the dark arts done in a cardigan, and I kind of appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a lot going on in this issue, uh, and there's a lot more to talk about, but I think most of it's going to probably come up in the minutia. Is there anything else you want to bring up before we move into that? Yeah, just one final point. So you're asking me about, you know, how I felt about getting more of the backstory for Gargoyle. Mm-hmm. And what, I guess, the criticism that jumped out at me was through his whole backstory, his dad's just being a total asshole, right? Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I have whiplash from his dad just being like, you're, you're the best son ever. I love you so much. <laughs> what? Yeah, it was all just tough love. That was why we pretended that we were mad at you and didn't like you and tried to get you to kill yourself. So you'd realize that you couldn't and you could help save the world, I guess. Go be a defender for a long time in your ugly gargoyle body now, son. Love you. I'm turning into Booberry now. (laughs) That is a weird panel where the dad, the mom and the kid and the brother who died in childhood fade out of being ghosts. Because the dad's head stays the same, but his body starts to be totally intangible, except he's suddenly wearing a bow tie, which he never was the entire issue. (laughs) He's got a weird little spectral bow tie. It did make me wonder if his other job was booberry. It's the booberry effect. Mm -hmm. Also, his brother doesn't get an ethereal body. He just has a disembodied head that seems to be growing sideways out of Gargoyle's crotch. It's an oddly drawn and kind of awkward panel. Yeah, to say the least. So that ending was pretty jarring. Yeah, it was. It honestly reminded me so much of the phobia ending, where her dad spends seven panels berating her and telling her she's garbage and she was an evil baby. And then in the last one, he's like, well, let's get you home and sane you up. Of course, I love you. Yep, same deal. I think maybe the backdrop of all of these comics is, yeah, dads are pretty shitty, huh? (laughs) But they probably love you. It's okay if they treat you like shit. They're dads. It's what they do. Yeah, they'll come around in the end after (laughs) you try and take your life and have to go be a superhero. Yeah, I think that is probably the the subtext of all of these comic books. Hmm. And uh, I think also the subtext of every Aaron Sorkin drama. (laughs) I will say this Defenders issue had less American exceptionalism than a Sorkin, though. So Mm -hmm. you ready to get into the minutiae? Let's. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts. We got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you want to start off with? 
Well, how about the artwork? Okay. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I had a couple kind of goofier ones to choose from. The first I want to highlight is when Gargoyle scares away those Bowery bad guys who are, they try and stab him and it doesn't work out and he yells at him, says, go away. And man, do they look scared. Yeah, the panel of them cowering in fear is really, really nicely done. As I said, really, the first three pages especially were just gorgeous. I kept looking to see if it was a different art team, but I think maybe Joe Sinnott just had more time on this one because he is the only inker that actually worked on this. And it was really, really good. I think my favorite is probably... It always seems like cheating when I choose this, but I think the opening splash panel of the gargoyle in his incognito outfit as the rain is coming down on him, he's standing in front of some garbage. It's just such a nice-looking noir look. You have a peeling poster coming off of the alley wall that says The Haunting of Christian Burrow on it, and you see the muggers that are about to attack him later are like huddled behind it. It's just really cool, and there's some nice details in it, too. Like, the box of something called Dozafoil. Do you have any idea what Dozafoil might be? Because it's in a box that looks like a microwave box. Yeah, I do not know. I gotta say, I kind of want one. The the lady wearing some kind of a quasi-military uniform on the box looks like she is very pleased with her purchase. Mm -hmm. But Yeah, I just really, really like that panel. I talked already about the panel in which Kyle looks embarrassed. That is another favorite of mine. And the other one that I like a lot, we have also already talked about, and it is the Speedo Angel Smells of Flute. (laughs) That one is really goofy. I think probably my favorite was Gargoyle blasting the life into (laughs) the purple cloud monster angel guy i liked that too it's a very dramatic moment when he flicks the switch from suck to blow in terms of life force and null the living darkness is not loving that nope no he blows him up good by going from suck to blow there but it's it's drawn in a a really dynamic fashion where it looks like he's putting maximum effort into um his biomystic bolts I agree. I love that panel, too. In general, the gargoyle, I think, looks really good in this issue. Yeah, I feel like the art team put a lot more into him than they might have in other issues. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, it's certainly more consistent because there is just the one anchor. Mm -hmm. Corey, let's have a battle of the band names! In last week's poll we saw Savage Assault of the Mind Rats defeat the unreliable narrator Metal of Blood Not Metal. Mm. So this week, we are once again going up against Savage Assault of the Mind Rats. What band names were you able to find in this issue that uh, you want to put up against them? I have three options. The first one I was kind of amazed is not an actual band name, at least a, a cursory internet search didn't come up with any and that's uh an outfit called shadow and substance Ooh, shadow and substance sounds good they Mm kind of sound like maybe they're like late 90s backpack rap hmm 
Does that sound plausible to you? That hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, let's let's go with that. Like they're a DJ and a battle rapper, kind of like idea and abilities, you know? Ooh, yeah. Although I think uh, the rapper is going to have to be called Shadow because there is already a DJ Shadow. Ah, uh, yeah. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. I had a few to choose from. I had the Psychic Monsters. Mm. I don't think I like this band. I think <laughs> I think it's a decent band name, but in terms of what the band is, I think they're probably new metal. Mm. And, you know, not really my favorite. Or maybe kind of like new retro metal, like, um, what's the other monster? Monster Magnet? Yeah, I can see that. I don't actually know Monster Magnet's music. I know a few people who have had backstage dealings with them that leave me with very mixed ideas of whether I like the band or not. Mm. The people liked them a lot and said they were nice, but I don't like the people who said that all that much. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Mm. Okay. Another name that I had was Fiscal Chaos. <laughs> oh, no. That's like a bunch of Wall Street guys that get together after work and <laughs> practice their jams. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a super accountant super group like the... Uh, <laughs> traveling Wilburys. Like the Traveling Wilburys. I, I was going to go more like that band that's all authors that are in a rock band together. Where it's like, I forget who's in it all. So like Stephen King and people? Yeah, Stephen King and his buddies. But yeah, the, the accounting equivalent of that. Fiscal chaos. Pretty tough. Mm -hmm. What else do you have? I have what I think is, uh, I don't know, punk rock or hardcore, loud, energetic music. Maybe some younger musicians called uh, Lobotomized Moth. I like that name a lot. That is one of my favorite phrases that appears in this book. Yeah. It's not like moths are all that clever to begin with. <laughs> it was very evocative of how Gargi was flying around. Well, it honestly seems like a sort of thing that would be much more applicable to the uh, seraphs, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the fire and everything. Yeah, well, that's specifically that they fly into the moon. Like, moths are always trying to fly into the moon. They just can't get there because they're dumb and they're moths. Mm -hmm. But like these guys, they actually made it to the moon. They have wings and they died by flying headfirst into a shiny flaming object. On purpose. Yeah, I think that's the kind of move a lobotomized moth might make. Mm -hmm. Regardless, good band name. Thank you. I had a couple of, I don't know. I don't know if they're jam bands or like acid rock bands, but whatever they are, they've, they've done a lot of acid. I think the first one is maybe more moody blues. The second one is more acid rock. But the names are The Myriad Realms mm. and Many-Eyed Cloud Thing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but I think my favorite of my choices is one that... It's a word that's come up in a lot of these books, and I think it sounds like it would make a pretty decent band name, Manservant. Hmm. And what Manservant is, is they sing folk songs about sandwiches. <laughs> because I have a friend who is always of the opinion that a sandwich should actually be called a manservant because of the origin of sandwiches. Oh, the gambling thing, right? Yeah, it was the Earl of Sandwich was gambling, and so he called his manservant and was like, make me some food that I can eat with just one hand so that I can keep gambling. 
I think it's actually pretty similar to the origin of sushi, too, right? It, like a hand roll, wasn't that the same thing in Japan, a similar origin story? I don't know that, but the logic is sound. But my friend was always of the opinion, and I think he's right about this, it should be named after the guy who invented it. Because the Earl of Sandwich didn't invent the sandwich, he just told somebody to invent him something. And what mm -hmm. they came up with, what the manservant came up with, was putting some meat between two pieces of bread. Mm -hmm. So, it's his invention. And if you're gonna name it after somebody's job title, shouldn't be the Earl of Sandwich, it should be the manservant. So, uh, I, I think the band Manservant plays folk songs that educate people about that. Mm. It's a real band on a mission. Exactly. Okay. I got one more, and this one I think is my favorite. These guys are a, uh, a Dire Straits cover band, oh. and they are called Nothing for Money. Oh, clever. I like it. Yep. Gosh, there's a lot of good ones to choose from in this. Yeah, it's tough. So you had Manservant's your front runner. What's your, um, your backup? Mm, I gotta say, I like Fiscal Chaos. I also really like Years of Shadow and Substance. Mm. How are you leaning? Do you have a favorite? I'm just I'm trying to think. I always, when we go through this exercise, want to, to beat the reigning champ. So, Well, I do too, because Savage Assault of the Mind Rats doesn't fit in the character limit for the poll choices, so I always have to figure out a different way to abbreviate it. So I really want to take Savage Assault of the Mind Rats out. Ooh, yeah, that's a long one. I love the backstory for Manservant. Mm -hmm. I, I do wonder if without the knowledge of the backstory the name would resonate you wouldn't pick up an, an lp that just said manservant on the front and had a picture of like uh reuben on it well if you put it like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is a majestic sandwich right there yeah you want to go with that i like it if there is one that you feel more strongly about i'm fine with it though no we can go with that maybe simplicity and, you know, a band with a really earnest message about giving credit where credit's due is, is what we need to um, shut down that uh, multisyllabic champion we have now. All right, let's give it a shot. I'll put the Twitter poll up. We will go with the sandwich-oriented folk rock of Manservant. Corey, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? I think the one that stood out to me the most is on page eight, Kelsey Grammer's Disguise. It's a good outfit. The Beast is dressed very sharp. It's, uh, in my copy anyway, a, a pretty bright orange. I don't know if quite like Hunter's orange, but pretty bright orange hat. What do you call that kind of hat? Sixpence flat brim hat with a matching color sweater that's mm -hmm. got a, almost a turtleneck, maybe three-quarter turtleneck. Maybe a mock turtleneck sweater. Yep, and then a very beefy kind of magenta, or I don't know what you call that color. I, I um, think maybe ochre. I thought ochre was like brown. Yeah, I'm seeing it's like a brownish red in mine. Oh, yeah, mine's definitely more on the red side, but a, a very serious thick uh, trench coat over his orange hat and sweater. Mm -hmm. Almost like a pea coat, but not navy blue, rather mm -hmm. a, a rust color, maybe. Uh, it is a really good look. It is like he is putting his own spin on the impenetrable disguise. Uh, he's like, no, I don't want to wear a fedora. I do understand that I am a distinctive-looking individual. 
within the Marvel Universe, but not to the extent that I have to disguise myself lest people flee in terror. It's more, I don't want people to recognize me immediately type of a look. And uh, I think it's a really solid outfit. Mm-hmm. Kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of a put-together look, I liked Valkyrie's sweatsuit that she's wearing to uh, sort through rubble with Patsy. It's just a uh, light orange sweatsuit that she's wearing, and good for her. Makes it much more dramatic when she pulls out the sword and changes into her Valkyrie outfit. Yeah, I had that too. Looked like a kind of a jumpsuit. We already talked about Isaac's bright yellow Dark Arts dabbling cardigan that he likes Mm -hmm. to wear. I think that is a solid look. And I also liked the little Lord Fauntleroy look of his dead younger brother. Mm. Short pants. Short pants and a nice little little boy bow tie. Just a giant lolly away from appearing in a very broad sketch comedy act of the 60s. -hmm. I enjoyed that look for him. That was a good one. We also already touched on Simple Joe, so I guess it's not really an outfit that I like, but it did lend to some of the discomfort with the character, because what else would he wear but uh, a pair of overalls? Yes, I was heartened that he did wear a shirt under them. Mm-hmm. Uh, heartened and, frankly, a little bit surprised. Yep. I also appreciated that one of the muggers was wearing a little toque. It kind of reminded me of the outfit that the wet bandits wore in home alone like the the muggers had that kind of a dynamic going for themselves i think Mm -hmm. where one of them's wearing like an applejack hat and a sports coat and the other one is wearing a longer coat and a uh, like yeah a little uh, toboggan hat with a pom-pom on top Mm -hmm. good look for mugging sure well done poorly executed but good outfit yeah well and also i call them muggers but they are very much stab-first muggers. Yeah, no, they're more mur- murdery than yeah. <laughs> Robbie. <laughs> Especially because the guy that they're robbing, like, the impenetrable disguise is not generally one worn by somebody who, it would appear, has a lot of money on them, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not like when Godzilla's rolling around wearing that outfit, you expect him to have, like, a rubber-banded wad of hundreds on him, you know? No, no, I think those guys were just out for blood mm-hmm. and kicks. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? So, despite her potentially invasive and not super thoughtful psychic paging, I thought that Clea really rallied the team together. She made Gargi cry in in a good way Mm -hmm. by expressing care and really helped that character's development along. And yeah, I think if not for her, we wouldn't have this uh, issue. Yeah, and I think we might not have this team that we have. Clea, I also had as my choice for best. She once again demonstrates that she is a very good friend. I like how supportive she is of Patsy, just, you know, continually popping up. Like I said, maybe you could use a little psychic ringtone of some sort first to let people know you're coming. But I like the idea that she just pops up every now and again. It's like, hey, girl, looking good. You go, girl. (laughs) Good for her. As much as I am annoyed that she is the character called upon to do basically all of the emotional labor for the team, 
Uh, she does a very good job of doing it, and she makes all of the other characters feel cared for and like they matter. And she goes out of her way to do that, so I had her as my choice. Nice. Conversely, for my worst offender, as I said, I come out of this issue liking him a little bit better, but I do have Gargoyle because that is a piss-poor suicide attempt, buddy. <laughs> oh, man. It's not that I want him to do a better job of it, but he does do a very bad job. So I didn't pick Gargoyle because despite his creepy ass power, like if you think about it, it's just every all the energy he has is by sucking the souls out of people. He's like a warrior. <laughs> no, that what's the character from uh yeah, yeah, from shot. Oh, what the fuck is the guy's name? What from we do in the, the shadows? Yeah, he's like a psychic vampire. Ah, oh, fuck. What is that guy's name? Colin Robinson. There we go. Colin Robinson. Yep. He's, he's a real Colin Robinson. But despite that, I didn't give him the nod for the worst. I think you had a much more charitable read on Kyle than I did in this issue, perhaps because he was human enough to show some embarrassment. Mm-hmm. And he took his friends out for dinner. And also, I like that he called his lawyers handsome. I thought that was nice. <laughs> Or dashing, because he was like, I think, I think maybe it was like him catching himself, like, oh, it's inappropriate for me to bring up that I find my nurse attractive. So uh, I just say that about everybody now. <laughs> but I do like that he was like, my beautiful nurse, oh, and my dashing lawyers. I, I could see like Rosenblum puff up a little bit when he heard that. Yeah, the the wordplay was cute, but at the end of the day, this guy, the buck stops with him for the success or not success of his company and all the people that report to him and rely on him for a paycheck. And I got to think him owing that much money and oops, I forgot to pay it taxes is going to result in um, a lot of changes in the company, assuming that everybody did their job and he just fucked up on his end. Yeah, there's going to be layoffs regardless. Mm -hmm. So that bummed me out. And because of that, I gave him the worst. I think that's fair. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Well, I only found the one, but I went with the noise of the creepy cat scratching Val in the face that says, Meow. Uh, I enjoyed that. I actually went with the noise that a ghost made because it was illustrated as a sound effect. It is the ghost of Isaac's dad emoting the noise somehow. Get out, get out, get out. <laughs> Harsh. just sent it vibrating through the house it's not a nice thing to do but it is an impressive thing to do fair enough what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue what words did you like best much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel yeah i had some that were from exposition boxes right after val gets scratched in the face by that evil kitty Mm-hmm. And the the ghosts are wreaking havoc. It's on page 13, and it goes, As if cued by the feline's vicious swipe, an eerie wailing arises, chilling the two women to the bone. Then the hissing cat leaps from Valkyrie's arms, scampers off down the main street, and chaos reigns supreme. Mm. Bum, bum, bum. Fiscal chaos? Probably that, too. <laughs> 
those are some excellent words. There are a lot of great words to choose from in this. I really enjoy J.M. DeMatteis's prose style. I think probably my favorite is the opening of the book. It just starts off on such a dramatic note. October. Some swear that it is not a month, but an entity. A dark force captured by the gods and held in bondage for 31 days. For 30 of those days, this remains an easily laughed-at fantasy. But on the 31st day, the gray morning before All Hallows' Eve, laughter comes hard. Mm. That's so good. That's just such a nice way to start a, a spooky October tale. Yeah, no, definitely sets the tone for what you're getting into. So I liked that a lot. I liked the description of Isaac's childhood home when he first arrives at it. Isaac Christians alights on the once fecund lawn he once spent many an afternoon mowing, looks up through tear-glazed eyes at the ramshackle mansion that holds a surfeit of memories, some pure joy, some pure heartbreak. I thought that was really nice. I enjoy the flowery prose, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing fecund right. Fecund? Fecund? Do you have a dog in this race, Corey? Uh, I think I usually say it fecund, but I can't think of like another, you know, a, a similarly structured word that makes me say it that way. How do we usually say it? You're probably a, right, because I think it's fecundity is the way that one's pronounced. But if you're talking about poop, then it's fecal, and that's also F-E-C. Right, and that makes things grow too. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows indeed. But either way, so some nice words, even if I don't know how they're pronounced. Indeed. I also really liked Kyle's explanation for what happened when he was just yelling at Clea's astral projection. Rosenblum asks him if something's wrong, and he's like, wrong? Uh, no, not really. Y you see, uh, my nose just started itching, and uh, sometimes I find that letting out a few really good yells stops the itch. No good, right? I liked that. I thought that was funny. That was well handled. Not by Kyle, but by the writer. Mm -hmm. And we also talked about looping erratically through the night sky like a lobotomized moth. Isaac Christians flies until the voices dim and finally fade. Mm. That's some nice stuff there. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, Hub, well, I've got one question for you. You do? Behold or be gone. Well, I'll be a buttered butt. That's not a phrase. <laughs> oh. Behold or be gone. To be able to communicate with dead relatives, but they can only tell you true answers about the interactions they've had with you. Oh. Uh, be gone. That was quick. Yeah, I don't want to know what people actually think of me. That is the only information they're able to impart is what they really thought of me. No, about so like any question that has to do with any interaction that you've had with a with a relative that's passed on, you could you could ask them about that. That's just the answers would be unvarnished. But is that the only thing I can ask them about? Because I mean, any interaction that I had with them, I was also there for. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be particularly useful. I mean, it would be nice to be able to talk to some of my relatives who have passed on. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a be gone. How about you? 
So what if we open it up a little bit more and it's not just about interactions that they've had with you, but I guess experiences that they had while you guys were both alive at the same time. And that, that is much more of a behold. Let, but let, let's tweak it a little bit more and make it a more nuanced question. You can ask them any question, but every question you ask them will end with them giving an unvarnished opinion about you. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you could be like, Grandpa, what really happened that day in 1930? What, what really happened that day back in the 20s when uh, Amelia Earhart was your social worker? Because, uh, I don't know, have we talked about this? That uh, Amelia Earhart was my grandpa's social worker? I don't know if we have on the show. Yeah. I don't have a ton of information about it. I would really like a lot more. I don't think she was specifically my grandfather's. I think it was for his older brother. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got questions about that because all I know is what I found that he had written in the beginnings of a biography that he started before he passed on. And all he wrote about Amelia Earhart was that he was very impressed that she had a red car. <laughs> wow. But so like he would tell that story, but then he would just be like, and when I saw you that one Thanksgiving, you really looked like you'd put on a lot of weight. Right. Yeah. It's going to end with some critique. <laughs> Let's talk about your academic choices. Oh, boy. The thing is, too, man, I love my grandfather, but I have already heard a lot of his unvarnished <laughs> opinions because that was really <laughs> the only kind he had, which God bless him for it. But uh, yeah, I, I think I'm good. Yeah. No, I, I did had a similar takeaway. There's a lot of things I'm curious about, especially, you know, my, my mom's experience and my grandparents. But I think I'm good sticking with, you know, the memories that I have of them. Yeah. People tend to look a lot better in the rear view mirror. Yep. All right. So a couple of uh, begones. Well done, Corey. Thank you. Now, Corey, despite the fact that he did not appear in this issue, even on the cover this time, we both know that the Hulk still rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this issue, I had the Hulk learning a good lesson from an experience that Val and Clea had, which is that, you know, if you're hanging out with somebody that's got a lot of expertise in the area... <laughs> And they're trying to impart some of that expertise to you that's relevant to the experience that you're both having. For example, your mystically powered pal tells you something strange is lurking in the fog waiting to don't interrupt them and be like, oh, look, a cat. That is a good call. And pick it up. Don't pick up strange cats, especially when your friend is telling you some <laughs> some weird shit's about to go down. Don't do that. That is a very good rule for the Hulk to impart to us all. I hope nobody interrupted him when he was teaching us that. Me too. I had the Hulk's rule being, you know, sometimes you need an outside perspective. I think if the Seraph had maybe taken a second, slowed down, stopped to smell the flutes, and uh, talked to somebody outside of their little core group about, hey... Is it really important that we find the meaning of life right now that they wouldn't have gone into that kind of a, a shame spiral that they collectively went into? Mm. Like when you have a tight knit group that is all focused on the same goal, it's really easy to lose perspective. 
And I think sometimes you need to step outside of that, talk to somebody not specifically involved in the task, and get a little bit of outside information. Otherwise, you're gonna end up just spiraling out of control and uh, really just uh, mothing yourself into the moon, which is, I guess, filled with lava for some reason. Bang. Corey, why was the moon filled with lava? How else would the existentially challenged angels burn themselves to death? Well, they wouldn't have burned themselves to death necessarily, but you can still just, like, pancake yourself into the moon's surface. Yeah, gosh, that's a good point. Do they drown or burn to death when they flew headfirst into all that lava? Man, it's too bad we don't have president of the drama club, because they all would have won that. That's true. That is a very dramatic way to go. And not necessarily more painful, but more confusing a way to die. Like, much like the, uh, the Great Molasses Flood, where, like, some people were crushed to death by the molasses, some people boiled alive in the molasses, some people drowned in the molasses, and uh, some, like horses, who stumbled into the molasses days later, just were unable to extract themselves from the molasses and had to be put down. Just, uh, gotta say, molten moon core is a lot like molasses in that regard. A lot of different ways to die. Okay. And that's the Hulk's rules. <laughs> I read a thing about that. There was one instance where there was a kid who got caught up in it. And I guess it had traveled far enough that it wasn't burning anymore. Mm-hmm. And it carried him like across town. And he was just like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and family found him a, like a day later, two days later. But he was okay? He was okay. Wow. Just like really sticky oh yeah and probably never wanted to see molasses again after that that's a bummer for him because you know the city streets still would when it was hot out smell like molasses for years after the event man destroyed four city blocks a lot of large wooden structures created a wall of molasses moving in excess of 30 miles per hour i don't know if you blame corporate greed or poor engineering or or both but i guess what caused it is it that they didn't account for when it got hot outside, the molasses would expand, and that's what caused the uh, containing tower to burst. It was partly that. It was also that they were really doubling up the load of molasses, I believe, in anticipation of prohibition, because you would use that to make blackstrap rum. Mm-hmm. And there are also some accounts that there may have been acts of sabotage involved as well. Oh, the humanity. Indeed, the delicious, delicious humanity. (laughs) Well, Corey, I have just one final question I've got to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1982, and the month of our Lord, January, what Wong doings was Wong doing? This was an interesting one for Wong. So we got to backtrack a little bit, though, before we get to uh, January 1982. We know already that Wong has extensively traveled and spent lots of time in different parts of the world, including parts of Asia, specifically both Hong Kong and mainland China. And he has a buddy back there, one of Wong's kind of original sparring partners and martial arts buddies, this guy Wu Bin, who turned out to be a pretty famous wushu coach. Wushu is a sports form of kung fu that is really popular in China. And probably like mid early 70s he gave wong a call and was like wong you gotta come you gotta come meet this kid he's fucking incredible and so they go out and yeah he has this young student who is just kicking ass 
like he's 12 years old he's beating other medalists who are you know in their mid to late 20s he's like standing in the first place podium and the other guys are still taller than him like it's it's a whole thing and that young man's name is Li Lianji the family name first and he and Wong and coach Bean hung out a lot and practiced their martial arts together and yeah this kid had a meteoric rise through the competition circuit ended up retiring due to a knee injury at the young age of 18 and both Wong and Lianji shared a love of cinema, including um, some of the martial arts films that were coming out of Hong Kong. But there'd never been one that came to big acclaim starring the Chinese actors. And so Wong really encouraged his young friend to pursue this. Thus, it happened that in 1982, the Shaolin Temple movie came out starring a young then named Jet Li in his debut role. And it's funny watching this movie, you know, now it seems kind of old timey. But it's hard to overestimate the impact of this film. First of all, up until then, most kung fu movies were made in Hong Kong. They hadn't been made in China. And when this movie came out, it sold over 300 million tickets in the Chinese box office. It's to, to date, probably accounting for inflation, the highest grossing film ever there. It was the first one to show the Shaolin Temple, which at that point, it was still kind of in bad shape after the Cultural Revolution there and basically generated a huge amount of interest in that. It became later in 2010 a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Kung Fu became very popular, not only in China, but worldwide. And Jet Li became also an international star and went on to make movies all over the world. So kudos to him and nice job, Wong, for helping to uh, you know play a small part in influencing that series of events. Nice job, Wong. Well, acting as sort of a cinematic doula to the <laughs> film career of Jet Li may have been one thing that Wong was up to in January of 1982, but it wasn't the only thing. In fact, it wasn't the only thing that was influenced by a love of cinema. See, as we've discussed before, I believe, Wong is a bit of a metalhead, always <laughs> has been, and he also is, as you mentioned, a bit of a cinephile. And those interests converged a little while ago when Wong started hanging out with one of his favorite performers, Ozzy Osbourne. Oh no. <laughs> See, back when he was playing with Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne was touring a lot, and he and Wong ended up striking up a conversation. And it came up that Ozzy Osbourne was a big Monty Python fan. Wait, really? This is true. It turns out Ozzy Osbourne's favorite movie ever is The Life of Brian. Hmm. He's stated this in many interviews. And that's not Wong's favorite Python film, but he thought it was pretty good. And he and Ozzy Osbourne struck up a bit of a friendship. So when he found out that Ozzy was touring behind Diary of a Madman, he decided he would go and hang out with his friend. He met up with Ozzy on the road in Iowa and was like, hey, hey, Ozzy, we should go see a movie. You know how you love Monty Python? Well, Time Bandits is the number one movie in America right now. It's made by a member of the Monty Python crew, Terry Gilliam. We should go check that out. So they went and watched Time Bandits together, and they really enjoyed it. Some aspects of the film haven't aged particularly well, but overall, they both had a very nice time watching the film. Afterwards, they just, you know, they started catching up. Ozzy's like, Sue, what, what have you been up to? <laughs> And uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good Aussie. <laughs> Thanks. But Wong was like, 
Oh man, all kinds of shit. Like they, these guys that I hang out with, these defenders, they fucking they had Dracula over to the house a couple months ago, and Ed Ozzy was like, Dracula, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> he got really freaked out. He's so animated. He's not normally that animated. Well, this is back when he was still on drugs. I oh, really hates Dracula. <laughs> Yo, can't stand the guy. I think we've talked about this, if not on the show, then privately, certainly. But Black Sabbath gets a bad reputation for being really into, like, Satanism and shit like that. No, no, no. If you, and listen to those songs. They think Satan's a real fucking piece of shit. Yep. You listen to War Pigs, it's all just like, man, what the fuck is wrong with Satan? Why does he always want us to start wars and stuff? Fuck that guy. Mm-hmm. He's a real piece of shit. Yeah. So uh, that, that's kind of Ozzy's stance on Dracula as well. And he was really freaked out. So, unfortunately, when he was performing that night in Des Moines, Iowa, he still had the fact that Dracula might be around in his head a little bit. And that's why when somebody threw a bat on stage, a couple of things were going on. First of all, he didn't think it was a real bat because the bat was stunned by the lights and was completely motionless. So he thought it was a toy prop bat. But in the back of his mind, he was also, also like, Oh shit, Dracula! <laughs> we'll find that! <laughs> and so that is why, infamously, at that show on January 20th, 1982, in Des Moines, Iowa, Ozzy Osbourne bit the head off of a bat during a concert. He didn't actually bite the head off of the bat, he just like, started to and then was like oh shit that's a real bat and uh after the concert he had to get rushed to the hospital to make sure that he didn't have rabies and get a series of rabies shots and stuff i choose to believe that he would not have tried if he had known that it was a living animal have uh have injured it in the way that he did i'm pretty sure it killed the bat oh poor bat jesus yeah what a way to go (laughs) ozzy osborne biting you like that (laughs) yeah that's actually what i have um that's how i want to go I want to be thrown on stage and have Ozzy Osbourne bite my head off. Oh, jeez. In front of a live audience. Uh-huh. Because he's afraid of Dracula. Oh, wow, dude. Nice work. I remember the shirts that were made after that kids were wearing them when I was in elementary school. Oh, what did they say? Well, I don't remember what they said, but there was like a picture of him that was either painted or, you know, before Photoshop Photoshopped to make him look like he was holding a bat body and had a bloody mouth. Oh. It was creepy. It is creepy. Also, in my head, I'm picturing it like it was done by, like, a boardwalk caricature artist. No, no. Like, so what do you like, Mr. Osborne? Uh, dune buggies? Biting the heads off of bats! It's like, all right, I'll give you some giant teeth and uh, put, you, put you in a dune buggy, biting the head off a of bat. Uh, was he in a dune buggy in the picture on those shirts? Uh, no, I think he was just, like, standing there. Oh, that's a missed opportunity. He might not have been actually holding the bat. That's the way that my young memory of it is. I was a really little kid when that actually happened and was completely unaware of who Ozzy Osbourne was. But my main touchstone for it was a Billy and the Boingers lyric. In the Bloom County collection, Billy and the Boingers, it came with a flexible record that you could play on your record player. Mm-hmm. that had a song about Billy and the Boingers, and there was a lyric that was, and if you don't know by now, Bill bit the head off a cow. Sheesh. That was from the song, Cause I'm a Boinger. <laughs> it really escalated. Well, you gotta. 
Mm-hmm. You gotta constantly move forward. Mm-hmm. Like a shark. Yeah. Biting the head off a cow. Man, imagine the things that a shark rock star would bite the heads off of. Ooh, I wonder if that's why Jabberjaw had such a bad reputation. Jabberjaw. Uh, he was the cartoon shark who was a drummer for the Neptunes. Oh, that Jabberjaw. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I'm sorry, I should have specified. <laughs> yeah, thanks for disambiguating. Uh... Yeah, no, I meant the drummer. Okay, okay. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking to you about this comic book. We will be back next week to talk some Teen Titans. And in a couple of weeks, we will be back to find out what the Beast's deal is. He's uh, got some tossed salad and scrambled eggs for the rest of our defenders. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically, can you imagine, at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on uh, some socials media, just, uh, you know, hanging out in the internet, doing some things, probably beating Don Cheadle at cartoon basketball. Still haven't seen that movie of you. No, no, not yet. Did you watch the first Space Jam? Yeah. Didn't we? We probably seen that together. I think we did. I think we missed a window of potentially enjoying that movie because uh, I heard the soundtrack before and I just kept waiting for them to play Hit 'Em High and it didn't until the very end during the credits. It's in the credits. Yeah, it's such, yeah, such a waste. This is bullshit, man. Yeah, I think we might have actually, this is dating ourselves, but walked to the Blockbuster <laughs> when <laughs> that was on Foster Road and rented the VHS tape. Yeah, I think because we, we wanted did. to see that song in the movie. Ah, such a good song. Mm. So yeah, we're probably in the internet trying to beat Don Cheadle at basketball, so he'll play us hit him high. But if you can't find us there, there's another place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's heart this week? I am going to be rewatching the 1982 classic, The Shaolin Temple. Ooh, and I will be trying to find that Flexi Disc album, Billy and the Boingers. (laughs) I remember I made a cassette tape out of it. I think I still have that bopping around somewhere. Because I'm a Boinger was pretty good. I'm trying to remember what the B-side was. Yeah, I actually remember this thing you had. Oh, it was You Stink, But I Love You. Hmm. Good times. Mm-hmm. I remember being very surprised that that record had any lyrical content other than oop ack. Yeah, that's true. Well, I remember Cuz I'm a Boinger was actually sung by Steve Dallas, who was the band's manager. What was he doing appearing as the as the lead singer? Being Steve Dallas. <laughs> Typical Steve Dallas shit. Well, <sighs> if you would like to support us monetarily and keep us in Bloom County collection money... <laughs> You can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a whole bunch of other content up there in the form of video reviews of classic comic books and additional podcasts that I've recorded with several of my friends, including Corey. So there's a ton of stuff up there, and if you donate, you get exclusive access to all of that. 
Uh, and you also get my thanks. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support the show in a non-monetary way, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Corey, what are, what are some of those ways? You should tell people about the show. Yeah, but only the good parts. Well, hey, no such thing as bad press. Oh, that's true. I think there is such a thing as bad press. Okay. I think probably some of the uh, substandard occult paninis that young Isaac Christians experienced in the back alley bistros of Europe were probably the result of a bad press. Huh? Oh. Because it's a panini, it's a press sandwich. Yes, sir. Solid gold! So, yeah, just rate this show as highly as you would rate that terrific panini joke I just made. Oh. Five stars out of two. Wow. As most panini jokes are rated on a two-star system, but uh, I think that's a five-star joke if I've ever heard one. All right. So, yeah, that goes into uh, the, the other thing that people could do to help support the show, and that's uh, leave a review wherever you get your podcast. I don't know, you could say this is a five-star panini out of two stars. Five stars. Yes, that's a lot of math, but I think people will appreciate it once they are able to solve that equation. Here's another example of a review that can be left. This is one that was left for us on Apple Podcasts. Jeepers! This podcast is like a stinky fart. Funny and polite to eat. Five stars. That was left by Flamio Flareon. Thanks, Flamio Flareon. I agree. This podcast is a lot like a stinky fart in all the best ways. Five stars for your five-star review. That's, uh, if you're uh, keeping track at home, that's ten stars. Hmm. A couple more of those and uh, we can start making some constellations. Huh? Mm -hmm. We got a big dipper, we got a little dipper. Let's get some mediums dippers in there. A couple of extra large dippers. A lot of ladle-based constellations still out there for us to enjoy. A whole gas nebula. Mm-hmm. So, when you look up and see all the constellations that can be created out of five-star reviews that have been left for Tighten Up the Defense, you'll find yourself thinking, Soup's on. Yeah, because of all the ladles. Yep. Well, yeah. Nice. Okay. Bye! Bye. And they knew it.